band that was Melbourne band's Mola with warning sign. You're listening to 3CR Radio. And you are listening to In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, we chat with Louis Dean Valencia Garcia, a fascism expert from Texas State University in Austin. And we chat with Cheryl Overs, a pioneering sex worker advocate in Australia and overseas. 3CR Well, Louis Dean Valencia Garcia is a queer person and the assistant professor of digital history at Texas State University. And Louis begins our interview by describing the dire state of the coronavirus pandemic in the US. Dire is a good word to describe it right now. Um, I guess just for context, for the most part, I've basically been in lockdown, for lack of a better word, since March. So I think that right now what we're seeing is sort of unprecedented numbers as far as new infections, um, people in the hospital, um, most hospitals, at least in um, Houston, Austin, San Antonio, are at capacity or almost at the very uh, at the level that they need to have like new sort of emergency hospital set up. So it's pretty bad right now. How would you rate the president's response to the virus, and what do you think his agenda is by encouraging really people to basically just pretend that everything's okay? Um, my question there is what response? I think that's sort of the problem is there hasn't really been much of a response other than sort of uh, slandering and uh, calling out hoax. And that's sort of been the the modem, uh, modus operandi this entire sort of um, four-month period. I don't know if, um, I don't really know. It's kind of, just flabbergasting in a lot of ways and to see it being turned into a political tool for his own presidential um, prospects um, for this upcoming election, I think is sort of dire at this point as well. I, I guess I'm one, I'm not an expert in epidemiology or anything of that nature, but the fact that he barely wore a mask for the first time, since this started this past week, and that was to go inside of a hospital, says a lot. To what extent do you think his strategy plays into the far-right playbook? What are your thoughts on that? I know we saw in Michigan, for example, the far-right storming the legislature there, uh, the state legislature. Well, I think of Trump as part of the far-right, so I don't think that it's necessarily um, him playing into the playbook. I think he is very much so part of this milieu. Um, Trump very much so has uh, fascistic ideologies and is using this to his advantage. So yes, there's sort of the uh, further radical right extremists who are also using this to their advantage as well. But I think at a policy level, he's definitely done what he intended to do with keeping out anyone coming from the United States, in a sense. His wall was built by himself using the coronavirus. One way to think about it is Americans can barely leave the country at this moment. Thus, it's become sort of a wall of America's own design. And a lot of that is proposed by uh, Stephen Miller, who is known as sort of Trump's go-to guy for strategy on 
immigration policy. And I've written a little bit about this in my own research, but um, Stephen Miller used to collaborate um, in university with Richard Spencer, who is known as one of the leaders of the alt-right, if not founder of what we know as the alt-right. So I see Trump's administration as very explicitly part of the far right. So really, it's a far-right administration that we have. He must have quite a few senior advisors who are alt-right members. Yes, and there's been several, um, Stephen Miller being the one that most people understand or know of the most, but Steve Bannon also was part of this. And we know that he has been organizing across Europe for the last several years now since he left Trump's administration um, with the explicit purpose of finding the next Trump um, in individual European countries. So I think that it's a lot of, um, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that Trump is uh, demonstrating every tendency that we see in most fascist thinkers. Are you worried that he will steal this election by making it unsafe for people to vote and that uh, the Senate will undermine attempts to adequately fund an online or postal election? Even Joe Biden said said it very explicitly that in the event that Trump does not step down, he would have to go toward to the military to have them act on behalf of the Constitution. So even if I say this, it's... Um, it could sound alarmist, but it's coming from his challenger for the presidency. Uh, I think that part of this is thinking about Trump as a person who is very much so concerned with his own um, electability, and he's using the virus as an excuse to make this happen. So looking at sort of this issue of um, the economy being um, practically destroyed in the United States currently, He's looking to open public schools, um, coronavirus or not, putting children and teachers at risk because he sees public schools as being basically daycares. And these daycares need to be open so that parents can go to work. And his idea, I believe, is to activate sort of a forced economy that will end up with potentially thousands, if not considerably more deaths. Of course, Trump's policies towards the transgender community in particular have been horrific. Tell us how that's manifesting itself in America. I think that one way to think about this is, um, for the most part, what we see with Trump and his sort of attack of the trans community, I think is reflective of sort of his general antipathy towards, we'll say, queer people and women in general. Anybody who is not a straight white man essentially is at risk of Trump's furor. I think one of the things that we're seeing with sort of the trans community in particular is that Trump sees this as sort of an easy target. And I think that's one of the things that's most disturbing about this is Trump is using the full force of the law. So, for example, he has the ability to uh, essentially say that trans women are not, or trans people in general, are not allowed in the military. And so he has a lot of these sort of bureaucratic uh, levers that he's able to use. 
the some of this goes um, towards more the ostracization of queer people. But more specifically, what he also does is by using this sort of anti-trans, anti-queer, uh, misogynistic rhetoric, it allows for people who are more of his thinking to think that it is acceptable. And I think that's really some of the real danger that we're seeing right now with the uptick in violence against uh, the trans community as well as queer people in general. And uh, we also know that um, domestic abuse against women has also gone up in the last four months. And I think a lot of this is compounded by the coronavirus um, but it's also indicative of sort of a worldview that's been given a platform and has become more socially acceptable for people of the of right wing sort of thinking. So Trump's ideology is encouraging hate crimes, if you like, towards vulnerable groups, including the LGBTIQ community. Absolutely. The way that I like to think about it is that what Trump does and what he's essentially trying to promote is sort of a glad handing of, oh, I'm pro-gay rights. He'll say something along those uh, those lines. And he's said at various times these types of things. But what you end up seeing on the ground is people who are in um, particularly positions of power like the police that see this as sort of a... Uh, an excuse, a sort of turning of the head that allows for them to further abuse their powers. And I think that's one of the most insidious things about this is that you see a lot of the good work that had been done in the first, um, we'll say, um, 15 years of the 21st century that was really making efforts to improve things in the United States for um, we'll say the queer community more broadly, essentially being pushed to the back burner. And I think that's actually, it's pretty indicative sort of why Trump uh, came to power in this sort of right-wing swing is a rejection of a lot of the ideas that called for equity, called for representation, called for protection. And I think that a lot of what we can see with the Trump administration and what I can talk about more specifically in my research is I study fascism. And one of the things that fascist groups that fascists typically go against is the queer community. We've seen this in virtually every single case of fascism. And I think that with Trump, it's just a 21st century reiteration of that. You're listening to an interview with fascism expert. Louis Dean Valencia Garcia from Texas State University on 3CRs in your face. There's a lot of parallels between Germany in the 1930s and the US today. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, a couple of things that we can think of right off of the bat is um, Germany was in a dire economic um, depression, we'll say. Um, both in the 20s and 30s was pretty... Um, dire for Germany, we'll say economically. But also in, the, um, in those decades, you also saw, particularly in the 1920s in Germany, an opening up of sexual liberty in Germany. And um, people might be more uh, uh, know of this as sort of the image that you see in 
films or musicals like Cabaret, uh, things like that, where sort of a sexual liberation was coming forward. It was also the jazz age. And so black musicians were uh, finally getting some respect. And this was happening in Nazi Germany as well, um, where you saw this rejection of a really pluralistic culture that was coming about. And I think that we can talk about sort of fascism as the rejection of those ideas. When we're thinking about, um, we'll say, the rejection of queer people in society, the rejection of people of color, the rejection of ethnic minorities. All of these things are standard practice in fascism. Um, we can also talk about sort of ableistic uh, tendencies. In Nazi Germany, if you had um, some sort of disorder, either mental or physical, you would be in danger. And I think what we're seeing right now with even the coronavirus, with um, the push against healthcare, all of these things are marginalizing people from a wide variety of different already marginalized backgrounds. And I think what Trump is showing us is that this uh, attack is very much so systemic. I think that oftentimes people think about um, policy as sort of one indicator, uh, indic uh, way of indic um, indicating, we'll say, of where we stand in um, in regard to the protection of marginalized groups. And I think for the most part, what we're seeing with a lot of Trump's orders in particular um, demonstrates sort of an attack of those groups. We saw that, of course, on the border with Mexico, with the hoarding or the herding of, of, of refugees into those immigration detention centres, the splitting of families. Uh, it was very much a fascist response, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. I think um, one way to think about this, I think, is um, we started off the Trump administration with an attempt at a quote-unquote Muslim ban, which is one uh, against, we'll say, every American law that was on the books, you're not supposed to discriminate based on religion. That never came through, but he was able to manipulate the law so that he could indicate certain countries as long as he didn't say that the rationale was because of their religion. Um, whenever we talked about, uh, whenever Trump talked about sort of this um, building a wall, talking about Mexicans and uh, migrants coming into the United States as rapists, murderers, etc., he was using tactics that are very similar to the ways that Roma, Jewish, uh, other people of color uh, in Nazi Germany had been described. And I think one way we can think about this is sort of the playbook is pretty straightforward. And I guess like that's sort of whenever I'm saying that I don't separate Trump from the far right, because I see him as very much so um, the major perpetrator of this sort of ideology right now at the systemic level. To what extent is the LGBTIQ community in the US mobilising and preparing itself against the far right? Uh, are you seeing people, you know, um, taking up gun licences or engaging in, in self-defence more because of that fear of hate crimes and uh, attacks from the far right? 
I've not, um, but I probably would say that I've never, um, I might be one of the rare people that lives in Texas that has never seen a gun up front. So that would be something that I wouldn't have probably seen in any way. Um, but I think that people are trying to protect themselves the best they can. And I think right now it's mostly just tied to survival. I know that um, last week you um, had um, had a guest who was speaking about um, sex work, right? And just thinking a little bit about that is people are trying to survive in the middle of a pandemic. And I think that what we're seeing is survival mode for the most part, and it's not necessarily defensive. I think that a lot of uh, queer communities have come out and um, joining the Black Lives Matter uh, protests in the last month, and I think that was a really good effort. Uh, a lot of the sort of typical things that were would be associated with Pride Month, month were put focusing on sort of Black trans lives in particular, and I think that was a one way that it's happened. But honestly, I think that right now it's a lot of people sheltering in place. Tell us about the Black Lives Matter movement where you're based in 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 Austin, in Texas. Yeah, so one way to think about it is it's been active. Um, I think right now it's sort of. Um, gone down to a core group of people who will go out when they can. It was all over the country. It, I mean, obviously it was all over the world for at least a bit, but I think one of the things that's kind of disappeared from the media is the sort of uh, continuing existing efforts be, um, that have continued since we'll say the beginning of what was this round of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think that one way to sort of put it into context is everybody is trying to do what they can do in the ways that they can. I know, for example, um, I'm co-facilitating a reading group with something like 35 students at my university of um, how to be an anti-racist. And these are some small things that can be done and it's being done over Zoom and trying to help people think through these issues and to talk it out. And I think that's one way that I see it continuing is sort of in the everyday discussions, but it's also happening in protests. And I think what ultimately we're seeing is a, uh, if there was a very far swing to the right with the 2016 election, for the first time in a very long time, I think that Americans are being put in sort of the limelight and that they have to actually not just say that they are, um, they themselves are not racist or not contributing, but that they have to be anti-racist. And I think that that's a very positive step. So it sounds like race is going to be a key election issue. Certainly it is at the moment. Oh, absolutely. And I think it always is um, one way or another. Uh, I don't know. I was just reading, um, Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist um, for this uh, book um, group that I'm leading. And one thing that he describes in that book is that 
all policies are either racist or they're anti-racist. And if we think of elections in that sense, all policies are either contributing to already existent racist structures or they're trying to combat them. And I think that the election has to really be about that by default. Are you concerned that if Joe Biden wins the election, there'll just be a return to the status quo when it comes to policies around race? I think one way I like to think about it, Joe Biden probably would have been my last pick for uh, a contender for this. So I'll just put that out there. But I think that we're talking about comparing a man who puts children in concentration camps and has already seen more than 150,000 American deaths on his clock, who is actively trying to um, benefit financially from his presidency and has essentially what we can say a very nationalist, if not white nationalist policy that he's operating under. Given all of that, I think a to sort of um, to think a little bit about what does Biden give us. I think Biden is a stop measure, if nothing else. And sometimes you need that. I know uh, when I think a little bit in comparison with my studies of fascism, if at any point there had been somebody who could have momentarily displaced Mussolini, momentarily displaced Hitler or Franco in Spain, that would have been good enough. And I think we're at that moment in the United States right now. Who do you think will be the successor, the far-right successor to Trump? I mean, it seems like there must be some people within the far-right who are already planning for a loss in in November and, uh, and are looking at 2024 already, for example. Well, I think, honestly, I think that there's a good... Um, I guess I'm an historian, so I don't try to always, I try to avoid predicting things, um, for lack of a better word. I think that there's any number of people who would like to create a new world and, um, the image of a white nationalist. Uh, I know Richard Spencer has always claimed, um, an idea that he calls peaceful ethnic cleansing which sounds horrendous, I know. Uh, this all sounds so dire. I was hoping like it wouldn't sound, it wouldn't sound, come off as too dire, but he talked about peaceful ethnic cleansing. And the idea essentially with Spencer is to make people of color and marginalized groups feel so uncomfortable that they will voluntarily, peacefully deport themselves. And there are thousands of people in the United States who believe similar ideologies, um, so-called race realist or um, any number of euphemisms that they use for fascists. And I think that one way we can think about this is sort of a lot of this moment has not been just about Trump as a leader because he's not really leading the movement. He is reflecting it. He is feeding into it, but he's not really leading the movement. And I think that's um, one of the important things to understand right now about this moment in the United States is that it's a very decentralized movement. 
And I think that a lot of scholars of populism can get into that more in depth than I can. But it's you can cut off the head of Trump, but there's always going to be more unless we actually do the work of having, we'll say, uh, people who have access to these ideologues and trying to slowly de-radicalize them. And I think that's all, that's the best we can do is hope that there is some way of moving towards de-radicalization. Louis, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that was Louis Dean Valencia Garcia from Texas State University. has been a sex worker activist in Australia and overseas, spanning four decades. She was a founding member of the now-defunct Prostitutes Collective of Victoria and was a leading advocate from the start of the HIV-AIDS epidemic. After working for the World Health Organisation overseas for many years, Cheryl returned to Australia last year and has been running consultations on behalf of Sex Worker Voices Victoria for the state's decriminalisation of sex work review. And Cheryl begins that interview 
by discussing her sex work advocacy and community education in the 80s, during the early days of HIV AIDS. Well, you know, it was one of those strange moments in history, really, because the background of the sex worker rights movement in Victoria goes back before AIDS, of course, um, to uh, the Prostitutes Action Group, which we started off in the early or in the mid-70s, really, that started. And that was not sex workers. That was, um, you know, feminists and, and, and feminist lawyers and so on. And then we we sort of, I joined and we kind of formed more around the sex worker community and the PCV was born. But this was all very much um, around human rights, sex workers' rights, around really carving a place in the women's movement uh, for what we now recognise as a sort of pro, as a kind of a pro-sex, a sex-positive approach in the women's movement. And so that was all underway when HIV came. So we were already working with sex workers and we were a group of sex workers lobbying around sex workers' rights. So suddenly the response to HIV uh, that acknowledged the importance of um, having um, injecting drug users and gay men and sex workers involved in the response was kind of foisted on us in a way um, and we um, managed to kind of reform ourselves into a service delivery mode as well as an advocacy mode. What were some of the barriers that sex workers faced uh, in the HIV AIDS response due to the criminalisation of sex work in Victoria? Oh, well, you know, brothels in those days um, were able to ban condom use. Um, they were well beyond any kind of reach of services. It was all very underground, um, was a bit of a wild west really. Um, so and people didn't acknowledge that they was that they were sex workers. They had to stay underground in order to to be safe. One of my favourite anecdotes is that me and my mate Mary Ann, who I'm still good friends with, when we did our first outreach work, it was in St Kilda in what was called Eaton Square, which was about 20 flats in one of those sort of old red brick um, blocks of flats in St Kilda Road and had red lights everywhere and signs. And we walked up and a woman opened the door with suspenders and lingerie and the red lights. And we said, we're here from the Australian Prostitutes Collective to talk about HIV and distribute condoms. And she was like, get out of here, who are you calling a prostitute? And we ran off down the we ran off down the, the driveway uh, mortified. So that was our first foray into outreach. You mentioned the feminist community before and uh, sex workers work with them in the 1970s as a precursor, if you like, to HIV AIDS. What were some of the barriers and opposition that you faced there? Oh, well, they were extreme. And, I, of course, I, funnily enough, I can still see feminists of my generation in Melbourne now who uh, have conveniently forgotten just how vicious they were to sex workers, how they were completely subscribed to the thinking of Andrea Dworkin, which um, was that sex workers were really traitors to the gender and that uh, criminalisation was too good for us. Uh, so, no, there was very moralistic attitudes, and those attitudes 
um, uh, persisted until today and a very kind of anti-sex and sex-negative um, form of, of, of feminism exists and is alive and well today. It comes in the form of anti-trafficking these days. In those days it, it came didn't so much have the trafficking theme, but it was it was certainly vicious. How did sex workers overcome that? Obviously, there's a long way to go, but what were some of the strategies that you used to combat those negative stereotypes and that prejudice? Well, you know, you're part of a bigger um, part of a bigger uh, a picture, of course, internationally and so on. So we were very lucky to link up with really wonderful sex worker groups in the United States and so on who were linking and linking with much more with the LGBTI communities. Uh, so that that became an extremely important political direction. But at the same time, I must really give credit to uh, people like Bibi Loff, uh, who set up the first Prostitutes Action Group, um, who were feminists who didn't buy into the um, into the sex negative and slut shaming um, discourses of mainstream feminism at the time. So those women were really, really important. Um, and there's others too. I won't won't list them now, but there are others too who who were at, who were actively broke ranks and you know as i say that that division within feminism between this what i would crudely call the sex negative and the sex positive uh exists until today and i mean there were lots of battles about the fact that we included transgender uh women in particular in um in the sex worker groups whereas they those those sorts of sex negative feminists of course were uh, turfs before the term was invented. How did sex workers uh, respond and try and subvert uh, the incredible over-policing of their work and the criminalisation of their work that was evoked from that? Well, one way was by telling anybody who came to your door to F off, as I've already illustrated. Um, but, you know, it's a process, and I don't think that um, sex workers really did do that as a whole. I mean, once we got the, the the prostitutes collective going, we did that by participating in other political groups, and we did that really mainly once HIV came through our links with LGBTI communities. Tell us about the journey that led to Victoria's cumbersome licensing system of sex work, which was developed in the 1980s. Tell us about the Neves inquiry and uh, the law reforms that were evoked from that, that arose from that. Yes, well, that was, of course, the other thing as well as HIV that fell into our laps, which was that there was that process at the time so that we quickly had to become experts in the law and in running a community consultation about the law and what we should be asking for. I um, participated, I was leader of the PCV at that time, so I participated in that with Marcia Neve and spent a lot of time with her and, and worked on that, on, on that with her. You know, we said exactly the right things then and we warned them 
then that if they if they legalized sex work and divided it into a two tier industry with a with legal brothels um, on one hand and illegal brothels on the other and illegal ways of working, that it would be a disaster. That all the problems that they wanted to alleviate would be um, simply be just split over the two tiers, and that's exactly what happened. Yeah, so it was it was difficult. I mean, in retrospect, it probably would have been better to have had no reform until a little bit later, because coming back to Australia thirty years later was really a quick for me a matter of I told you so because I remembered vividly the conversations that I'd had with Marcia. And I then came back and saw that they'd come exactly to fruition. And one of the things that I was particularly shocked to find when I came back was that this discourse that there will be an illegal sector in which there's drugs and illegal immigrants and criminals and it'll all be and no STI testing and no condoms. And then there'll be a legal sector that's properly regulated where people are going to the doctor and there's good work conditions. That's all absolute rubbish. Both tiers of the sex industry were made dangerous by uh, the... the um, legislation that followed the Neve the Neve inquiry. Did brothels and uh, brothel owners sell out sex workers by uh, encouraging and settling for this two-tiered system? Oh, absolutely. I mean, brothel owners weren't particular. I mean, everybody in a law reform process just wants their particular operation um, let off the hook. You know, I mean, it, you Brothel owners weren't that influential. What the most influential, um, the most influential party in law reform in uh, in in Victoria is police, and it's police who wanted sex workers. It, it was the police's vision that sex workers should all be herded in into a handful, um, and it turned out to be about eighty, as I understand it, into a handful of legal brothels. That you know that. 80 legal brothels throughout Victoria for, you know, 6 million people um, would be enough and that every one of those licensees, they would know who they were and they'd be able to control it. And that's completely untrue. They haven't controlled it at all through through that licensing system. But it's very much the police's vision, what sex workers want and what brothel owners want and and really what communities want is not that important. Police had the big influence um, at that stage, and I imagine they still do. So churches weren't particularly relevant in the government of the day's thinking around the uh, regulation of sex work? Well, keeping them happy, of course, is. I imagine I'm not a politician. I imagine you have to do a balancing act, and I do remember the, um, the submissions. But, you know, surprisingly... Um, the submissions, as I remember them at the time, uh, from the mainstream churches focused on the kinds of services and social justice issues around sex work. It's only the sort of evangelical and fringe Christians that were writing in talking about, you know, how everyone was going to hell and the government had to, rest, you know, stop all sex work, if not all other sex, you know. So that's a fringe, that moralistic position is always a fringe element, actually. The mainstream churches are, are more responsible. But, you know, it was a different time. And so, of course, they did have some influence, nothing like the influence that they have in the States. 
um, and other country, you know, other parts of Europe and so on. You left the Prostitutes Collective of Victoria in 1989. You subsequently worked uh, with sex workers overseas. Tell us about that incredible journey overseas. You've worked in quite a few countries. Yes. Well, again, you know, this is, you know, what I want to say about HIV is that it was a pothole in history, right? So this, and we're having another one now with coronavirus, obviously, but suddenly there was this pathogen which medical science and the existing power structures and institutions wasn't able to deal with. All it could do was throw education and condoms and clean syringes at it, basically. And that meant they needed us suddenly. Um, so the form of needing us suddenly for me was that I was fortunate enough to get a job in um, the World Health Organization at the Global Program on AIDS with Jonathan Mann leading it. And Jonathan Mann was very much the person who recognised the important role that um, what's now known as key populations would take in the HIV response and he also was the person who was really the author of the main connections made about HIV and human rights that have that you know still continue until today so that was of course a fantastic experience you know to be working at the very center of where the first responses to HIV were being developed by the you know the greatest minds 3C You're listening to an interview with pioneering sex worker activist Cheryl Overs on 3CRs In Your Face. So it was a great opportunity for, for to go from Melbourne to from working in a frontline service with sex workers in St Kilda to working with the top epidemiologists and thinkers in the world who were planning the very first responses to HIV. And from that, I... I met and worked with various other um, sex worker leaders throughout the world, the, the Dutch and German and United States um, organisations. And uh, over time, we formed the network of sex work projects because it was clear that sex workers were going to need uh, an organised voice in the HIV response. And we also needed a mechanism to be able to meet with other projects and other people who were working with sex workers for the first time. So that was fascinating. You know, that was, you know, people coming from Senegal and from um, from um, Russia and Mongolia and amazing countries telling their stories about how what sex work was like in their countries and the issues that they were facing. And then I got a job at the International HIV AIDS Alliance, which was um, uh, funded and set up programs throughout um, the world, really. And I worked in Asia and Latin America and Africa, um, providing the technical support to nascent sex worker organisations. So I've had a really great opportunity to to spend a lot of time with sex workers in, in various parts of the world. I may, my main countries that I've spent time in have been Brazil, India, Ethiopia, and maybe a bit Mongolia, but another I've been, been to like 20 other countries. And sex workers have the same issues in all those countries, ultimately. 3CR. 
tell us about the journey that led to you being involved in the current campaign for law reform, which is, of course, has led to Fiona Patton's review of sex work decriminalisation in Victoria. Well, it's a bit of an ugly tale, really. I'm stuck here. I I'm, came out to be with my mum, who's just who's 98 and has just gone into a wonderful um, care facility here, and that was all planned. And I was going to go home, and then COVID hit. So I'm I'm still in Melbourne unexpectedly, and at the same time, Fiona piped up and said, well, you know, we're doing this. And I've known Fiona, of course, for, you know, more than 20 years. And I really, tr- not not only do I trust her, I'm extremely impressed by her political record and how she deals with what she deals with, which I can't imagine. Um, she's so diplomatic and patient and she's really carved a, a, a fascinating place in Victoria for herself and for the party. So under those circumstances, it seemed logical since I've I've spent so much time studying sex work law. I actually did a did a large project a couple of years ago which mapped sex work laws in um, about two thirds of the of the countries in the world. So I thought I'm at the Michael Kirby Centre here when I'm here in Australia at, at Monash with my with my colleague Bibi Loff. So I thought, well, you know, we could do something here. Actually, what it's turned out to be is a tsunami of marvellous information. Uh, we had very little time, no resources to do it properly in terms of a research project. So we just kind of cobbled together a wonderful group of sex workers and had some, you know, webinars and and other conversations and have cobbled together a response. So it's kind of been fun, but it's also been frustrating, of course, the the Zoom conferences and so on and having, having such a tight deadline. But I'm very optimistic about the outcome. I mean, I'm very optimistic about getting it right this time. Surely we can't tell them what to do again and they get it wrong again. You mentioned all of the police opposition in the 1980s. Are you finding doing the review this time that there's more of a cooperative relationship with police, a better attitude from them, if you like, a more a more collaborative attitude? You know what? I don't know. I'm not involved anymore in the way that I was in the, the in round one, where I was in touch with the police all the time. I'm not involved in a frontline service. All I know is what I hear from um, the the people at Red in St Kilda and from individual sex workers. And it, of course, police attitudes have have changed on at that level in the last thirty years. I don't, I'm not, I, and I have no idea what the police are saying to to Fiona and, and, and she hasn't told me, unfortunately. But I am, I'd be surprised if they have had a shift in culture that means that they are willing to divest themselves of power. In other words, I think police are police are police and they'll always want more laws and more powers and rights of entry and rights to examine who is in what building and that person's record and connections. That's how, that to me is a fundamental of policing. 
So I'd be, I don't, it's not so much that they're opposed to sex work. That's not the issue anymore because the review terms of reference are not whether sex work should be decriminalised or not. It's how to decriminalise. So what police will do is be saying, well, they'll, I think, will be saying, yes, yes, that's fine, more law reform, we support decriminalisation, but we would like all of these powers and regulations that will enable us to control the sex industry properly. And that's what is wrong. That won't work. Sex workers will not comply with regulations that mean they've got to put their names down on registers, that they've got to, or not enough of them will comply. Some, of course, will comply. But to get proper compliance, you need regulations that everyone goes, well, that's fair enough, I'll do that. And police don't understand that. Police think their their need for power overrides overrides that. And then there's also the public appetite for having sex workers um, marched into the STI clinic uh, by the law, as it were. And um, that's very popular and governments often find it difficult to get rid of mandatory testing and lots of people like... So lots of people like the idea of control, uh, keeping control over sex work. The sexually transmitted infections argument is very kind of, you know, superficial, isn't it, when you look at, you know, sex workers' historic responses to combating epidemics and uh, and encouraging sexual health? Well, that's right. I mean, and the, to the extent to which sex, sex workers' sexual health is compromised by workplace um, health and safety standards is a matter for regulation. I mean, work safest uh, is 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 there for a reason, and regulations keep Victorian workplaces safe, and they keep workers relatively safe. I mean, everybody complains about you know health and safety and red tape, but the fact is it works. We do live in a very safe society here. I mean, obviously, given my history and working in other countries, it's this really strikes me as unbelievably safe. So those regulations that can keep that that can keep condoms in brothels, make sure they're properly stored, make sure sex workers can refuse clients if they want, you know, all those sorts of things that we know determine good sexual health. A lot of them are workplace health and safety um matters. And sex workers have been abandoned by WorkSafe. They've been abandoned by a criminal justice system, a criminal system where legalisation and licensing is meant to fix everything and it actually fixes nothing. So getting rid of that will enable the education, the supplies, the information and the workplace rights that are needed to make sure to to keep everybody healthy. It's really, I think a lot of the legislation here was made throughout the 90s as a knee-jerk reaction because if we think back to the 90s, there was a heroin epidemic here, there were people dying of AIDS um, and there was a lot of visible street work in St Kilda and there was organised crime about more about. So those things were all uppermost in legislators' minds in terms of winning elections. All of those things have now been dealt with. We're living in a different era. So hopefully um, Fiona will be able to convince her fellow um, politicians of, of that. 
Do you think the licensing system that we have in Victoria is inherently classist and racist because of its complexities, because of the barriers that that evokes for, for people from non-English speaking backgrounds or people that don't have, you know, a high level of education? It seems unbelievably cumbersome. Oh, it is. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's, it, I mean, it's racist and sexist. It's, it's, it's classist. It's, um, it's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, it's just everything. I mean, it's completely the wrong way. You know, we knew that at the time we'd already, we talked about Nevada, these horrible industrial brothels in Nevada. We talked to them about Germany and what the, you know, the legal, the legal brothels of Germany look like. You know, we know all of this and the evidence was there and they still did it. You mentioned safety and you mentioned your work overseas. You must have seen incredible violence towards sex workers, particularly trans women of colour in countries like Brazil. Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Violence that's so systemic, levels of violence that, that are just incomprehensible, actually. And even now that I've been in Australia for a year and before that I was in England for a year, and even now it seems like a bit of a, a blur, some of the things that, you know, I was routinely exposed to, um, as certainly in Brazil. In fact, in Brazil, I once did a study, um, quite a large study, um, where we had, I think, you know, hundreds of respondents. And I looked at the original data, the first data that came in, and I said to this, to the out, to the interviewers, we're getting nothing on violence. You know, we've got one woman out of 600 or one respondent, rather, out of six or 700 reporting violence. What on earth is this? I thought we were in Rio. And um, it turned out that they didn't define violence as violence unless you got injured and went to hospital and a gun was involved. So one gunshot, you know, somebody had been shot and that person reported themselves as a victim of violence. Everybody else didn't. So that gave us some very important information and we ran some work shops on violence that were, you know, blood-curdling, of course. Um, the rule of law in Australia is really underappreciated. I understand why people complain about police here and there is a lack of social justice and various other things, but there's a rule of law and it means that law reform is a worthwhile process here. Whereas in countries like Brazil, what a few people is sitting in a parliament write down on a piece of paper called law and what police do on the street bear no relation whatsoever to each other. And that is something that you can only really appreciate when you live without the rule of law, just how frightening that is. Cheryl Overs, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. It's been an absolute joy to hear your insights and we're lucky to have you back in the country fighting and campaigning and having input into sex work law reform in Victoria. Thank you so much. 3CR. And we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. Taking us as Prince with new position, Jacob's up next with a Friday rave.